This is Planted, a podcast that encourages us to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ and established in the faith. Welcome Noah Grimm and Aiden Keenel to today's podcast to discuss the value of the geography and topography of Israel during your Bible studies. Okay, welcome everyone. This is Pastor Matt Grimm. I'm back with Thad Keenel. How are you doing, Thad? I'm doing good. It's good to be back. We have some guests, I see. Yeah, we do. We, uh, we're in between our seasons and we thought we'd do a couple special episodes with some guests and interviews and uh, special topics, and we happen to have our sons with us today. That's pretty unique, I yeah. think, and what a blessing. Yeah, it is. So, uh, Noah, my son Noah Grimm's here. He, tell us a little about yourself, Noah. What are you up to these days? Well, uh, for myself, I just got back from a five-week course uh, in Israel uh, doing an intensive biblical study and geography program, but I'm also at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, entering my fifth year as a religion and communications double major with a minor in business administration. So that's what I got going on mainly. Yeah, yeah, you're hurting my pocketbook every day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, and Thad, you got your son here. Yeah, so let me introduce you to, to Aiden. Aiden is uh, my youngest child, and uh, uh, he's been married for a couple of years, and he has a, a, his first child at seven months old, and what's his name? His name is Theodore. That's and, great. Uh, yeah, we just actually moved back to the area. I grew up in Brighton. Mm-hmm. Uh, we attended church nearby. And uh, then I moved down to Toledo for school, went to the University of Toledo, studied chemical engineering there. That's where I met Kate, my wife, and then uh, graduated and we got married. And she, uh, she was, we were doing long distance for a little bit there. And then I proposed and I was like, okay, you got to come back now. <laughs> <laughs> So she moved back and then uh, got married, and now I start, started working for my dad recently um, in HVAC and been doing that. And so we you know, had to move back up in this area to be close to work. So it's been nice to be close to family again. Yeah, good to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, one thing we all share in common uh, is that we've all been to Israel. Uh, and Noah told you that he just got back. And uh, as, as Thad and I were talking about potential topics, um, we thought about what if we did a topic on kind of the importance of geography in the Bible and, uh, and just how being in Israel kind of helps bring the Bible alive to us. And you don't have to go to Israel to, for that to happen. You, we can talk Very about some, some tools and ways to, for that to help you. But it, if you ever get the chance, <laughs> uh, we I think we'd all say it was it was definitely worth it. Well uh, worth it, yeah. Yeah. So um, so yeah. So we we want to talk just a little bit about that. I know Thad, um, when you teach, you often if you have the chance, if you're in a section of scripture where there are place names and different things, you'll often use a map in teaching, right? And so just talk a little about why you feel that's important. Yeah, I really do, and that became emphasized after. Um, our trip to Israel, because uh, when you're going through and you have instructors that are are showing you the land and the geography and the topography of the land, and uh, Israel is very diverse in its characteristics. It's got the land, it's got the sea, it's got mountains, it's got desert, it's got a little bit of everything. It even has an oasis in the middle of the desert. Um, but 
because of the fact that you're going through Israel with a map in hand, when you start reading your Bible, you almost feel naked without the atlas with you. And so when we came home, I could barely open up the Bible without having some type of map open to see where we were, whether it was on the Sea of Galilee. Um, and it just it starts to come to life quite a bit more. And right. so when we just went through First Samuel, when talking about David, it's all about the land and where they're traveling and, and, and that. And so uh, it made it very helpful to show on, on portions of the map or the atlas, hey, where they are. Hey, they're really close to the Dead Sea right here. here. Right. Now they're all the way over by the Mediterranean Sea. So that all starts to jump out. And I'm sure that Noah's going to uh, make this even more expressive as we get further through yeah. this. And I think, <laughs> yeah. But I think one thing, too, a lot of people who have a study Bible or sometimes just a, a fairly regular Bible, you'll notice in the back, right, or maybe sometimes between the Testaments, there's some maps there. And for some people who love maps, you've probably looked at them a lot. For other people, you may have just passed them by, or maybe you've never even really looked at the maps that are actually in your Bible. Uh, and so hopefully after this podcast today, you'll want to look at them more. Yeah. You know, and so, and if you don't have one in your Bible, um, you can easily Google them these days. But if you have a Bible dictionary or you have some kind of Bible reference book, it's going to have maps in it most likely. And we want to encourage you to, to utilize them. And so um, that's, I really think, part of the point of this podcast today is we get to talk a little bit about our experience in Israel, but we also get to encourage you to use the maps and to look at them because it should help you understand what's going on in the Bible better, and, and with that, hopefully make you a better interpreter of Scripture. Uh, and so sure. we've talked about before in our podcast the importance of context and understanding the culture and the times and, and so forth, and all of that is wrapped up in the land. And so, so I just want to let Noah open up a little bit and just talk a little bit about this course that you take. That, that, so Noah went to Jerusalem University College. That Actually, my daughter spent a whole year there as well. She told her brother, you need to get a chance to go and go. And he took a couple courses there. And one of those courses, which you took over just a period of three weeks, so you had a very mm -hmm. intensive, is the one on geography in the Bible. And just talk a little bit about, one, why JUC encourages or basically requires every student to take this class. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and then just your take on, gosh, what it opened your eyes to in terms of the importance of the land. Yeah, I mean, so really a fun way my teacher started off the class was she pointed out the fact that the importance of maps nowadays are not there anymore in the world. We just pull something up on Google Maps and we don't even know where north or south or east or west is. <laughs> and that makes it really difficult to understand your location in your even your own city. So being in Israel and being stuck where you aren't trying to use Google Maps because either your phone doesn't work or, you know, you're just not going to be on your phone like that, you're forced to start looking at maps. You're forced to start feeling where is north, where is south, where is east, where is west. But so that was helpful. But then also being able to look at not only the geography, but the typography of the land, the uh, geology of the land is really impactful to see why why does David use, you know, shepherding analogies here in this location, but then he's talking about agriculture in this location in the Psalms? Um, 
that's a big indicator when you look at the geography of or the geology of stuff. There's a map here in the room right now, and I'm going to point to it. So to help out, there is the green is Cenomanian, and the yellow is Sinonian. They're characteristics of limestone that you know. I, I would never think that going to a Bible school that I'd be talking about <laughs> the different types of rocks and how they affect things, but they do because you see this in the land where um, the cross or where it crosses over between one type of limestone to another, it changes the land from being an area where there's agriculture to a land that it's basically just a bunch of wilderness. And when we think of wilderness in the United States, we think of, you know, Oregon or some like Yellowstone, the forest. No, the wilderness for them is just this barren wasteland that I think we all walked through at some point and felt desperately, we desperately wanted some water. Um, but those are just some of the things that you started to learn. You started right. to feel that. Now, as I look at this map, Noah, if, tell me if I'm correct. As we're looking, there's this green section and next to it, the, the yellow section. That yellow section is closer to the Dead Sea. Yes. And the yeah. green section's um, to the west of that. And I'm imagining there's a ridge line there of the mountains and hill country, right? There's Correct. a ridge line. So tell me about the why that ridge line's important as it relates to, I think you had mentioned to me the uh, rains. And so the before, rains come yeah. in. Let, I, let me just jump so, in real quick yeah. before uh, I forgot to mention this. Uh, there is going to be a link in the show notes to the diagram that we're looking at. So uh, go ahead and open that up and it'll help you get through some of this conversation as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I was hoping we were going to do that. So what you're seeing here on the map, um, there is an importance here. It's something called the rain shadow. Now, again, you're thinking like we're talking about weather here. How is this important to the Bible? But the most, I guess the opening question I'll ask the group here is when it comes to looking at basically the beginning of time all the way up until the basically the late second temple period when it comes to the context of history, not only here in Israel, uh, Palestine, but also just in land in general, what do you think is the biggest in indicator for a for the geography of where a city would be located in a place? What what is the most important factor for the city to be placed? I have an idea. <laughs> fresh water. Fresh water. What do you? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, fresh water. And that's the correct answer when it comes to that. You need fresh water, and so as we look at this map here, there are all these little fingers of different, uh, they're called wadis. Um, wadis are valley, dry valleys that water would have run in if it's in the rainy season. These affect where people would place their cities. These affect where different things would happen. And going back to the rain shadow that we were talking about, it is when the clouds would come off the Mediterranean Sea, the elevation would increase in the land due to the increase um, of the Judean hill country and Mount Carmel, different mountain ranges that are in the area. And because of the clouds getting closer in elevation and the air getting warmer, um, it causes the rain to happen and it, to rain in those areas. But then there's a stark drop-off due to the Rift Valley which is a fun little phenomena in our in our land in the world on that we can see. It is one of the only places that two um, tectonic plates are actually diverging from one another in on land. It's actually the only place, and that's why we have the Dead Sea as the lowest place on Earth, and why we see that. 
And so because of that Sark drop-off in this, basically this giant uh, valley being occurring, um, we have a uh, drop in elevation, which causes the rains to stop. And you have within a quarter to half mile of um, land, you have 26 inches going to four inches of rain. And you see that in the land. That's kind of what we've been, you know, we see, we've seen in person, but we see a little bit on this map of it's going from a area where there would be the ability to grow crops and food to now where it's like, you get lucky if there's a little patch of green grass on the ground and (laughs) you bring your, you bring your sheep or your camels or your goats over there and they eat that up and that's how you live life. And it completely changes how people interact with one another. Right. So when it talks about going to the land of milk and honey, right, it's talking about living in that green area, right? The area where you can grow these things. Well, possibly. But then also talking about milk, it, you, can, you can analyze that saying that the land of milk is actually that wilderness where you're mm-hmm. growing your cat, you're, you're raising your okay. nomadic mm-hmm. lifestyle. And the honey is actually not bees that we think of. They're thinking of dates and the the honey that you can make out of dates which is really good as well highly recommend you trying it did you guys have dates when you were there oh we did uh, they were just yeah well i don't know with all the other foods that we had (laughs) yeah Yeah, right yeah (laughs) it was amazing now I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's funny. When I remember when I was there, I was like, I don't know if I like dates. And then I would eat the fresh dates that were there. And I'm like, man, these are really good. Yeah. But that's funny because, again. It's super sweet. Yeah. <laughs> but, again, we read the Bible and it talks about a land flowing with milk and honey. And you get there and you walk around for 20 minutes and you're dripping in sweat. And then you're dry. Like, you, you dry off and then you're dehydrated. You're like, how is this? How is this like a fun place to live? Like what <laughs> what is God thinking when he says that? But in reality, what he's I think he's showing through that uh, phrase milk and honey is he's saying, you know, I will provide. Like constantly is this constant theme we see in the Bible. And really that's what the land truly shows you is if you rely on God, he will provide all that you need to prosper and flourish. Um so yeah. just real quick, just to ask Aiden and, and Thad a little bit, just Looking back, because you were there just a, f- a few years ago, 2019, what are some of the, the the just visual markers for you that you, when you think back and say, I mean, I was really struck by X or Y or Z, or what were some of the things visually that just really struck you when you were there, Aiden? Yeah, well, as, as Noah was saying, the, the stark contrast in, in the land, just in a very short distance... I want to say that Israel top to bottom is about the height of of the lower peninsula of Michigan, if I remember right. Um, And so relatively small, it might even be smaller than that. But um, we actually started on uh, the eastern side of the Dead Sea in Jordan um, and traveled south um, and stayed a night in the Wadi Rum Desert, which would have been very Mm -hmm. similar to the wilderness. And it's actually where they shot the movie Martian. Um, So if you're Mm -hmm. listening, if you've seen Martian, um, that's that's what this looked like. Desert everywhere, um, and the the few people that are there are nomadic herders um, living in a lifestyle that's very simplistic. And we we went and and saw one and got to interact with them and just completely remove some, from society unless they need to go in to to do business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
you go from truly a, a desert feel, a, a large hike to the nearest water source, um, and then as you travel not a very far away into Israel, it starts to get very mountainous, and you travel up along the Dead Sea, and then you it just becomes more hilly, and that's where it starts to get into the rainy areas, right? Mm, yeah. And so just the stark contrast in a very you know small distance that's drivable. You mean yeah. you're doing you know two three hours at a time. Um, each day, and it looks completely different right. than the day before. Yeah. How about you, Thad? Yeah, well, a couple of things that stand out for me is when you get um, just north of the Sea of Galilee and you look to the north, um, you've got Mount Hermon, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. it is mountainous. It is really yeah. crazy. And so you see the land of Bashan and, and all of that, and you can see how... Uh, what a military advantage that would have been um, for times back then as well. Still is today, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly, right. And then another one that stands out in my mind is we went to the Mediterranean Sea and um, Caesarea, and it was a windy, stormy day. And talk about not wanting to be anywhere near that water because it was it was kind of putting the fear of God in you almost. Right. Just mm-hmm. And then you start to understand what the abyss is all about in the scriptures, you know, yeah, what they're the talking about. So, yeah. yeah. So, exactly. but just, just a, a beautiful thing, but contrast after contrast. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, yeah, I think being able to imagine that visually is important, but I think you also, you know, if you have maps, I know I have a little, I have one here that I brought actually brought back from Israel, but it's actually uh, in relief. And so you can actually kind of see, you know, you hold it up and you can kind of see the just the the drop off of the Dead Sea mm-hmm. and and the mountains and things like that. That's 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 good. But but having a map that would, would show some of that or even seeing some of the elevation changes is, is a good thing uh, to kind of get into. Uh, but I, I want to since we brought up the rain and we brought up you, you asked the question of of water. Mm-hmm. You know, one of that's that becomes a very important illustration in the scriptures. Is is water, mm-hmm. and so forth, and so I thought it might be good for you, Noah, to just give us some examples from the scriptures, um, some things maybe you talked about in your class, but but also just what would how this is impacted by the geography, geology, and and what that um, how it impacts. Uh, it's used the Bible uses that for for helping aid our spiritual understanding. Yeah, for sure. So. Kind of as everybody has said, you know, rain or water is the most important thing for where your city is being placed. Um, within that, we have really there's three kind of water ways in which people collected water at the time of you know ancient, you know, Near Eastern living, and so those three different ways were uh, first were springs, so that would be what we see probably. What we naturally assume, you know, go find a river, go find the the spring, and you'd be all set, and you'd be living next to nice fresh water, you know, no problem there. But then you also have uh, wells, and then you have cisterns. Um, so as we said, you know, natural springs, those are just kind of God-created. The, wa- the water table is just pushing water up out of the ground, and it's causing this, you know, trickle of water that turns into a stream or a river, and you would just... Be there, you'd get your jar or your bucket, you'd go scoop up some water, and you'd go on your merry way. Well, then if you don't live next to a spring nearby, you would have to go and uh, build a well. Now, this is something that I think we sometimes forget over here you know, in the United States when we can just go and turn on our water faucet, how our land affects us. And really, 
when you're that desperate for water, the people at that time knew where water was. Like they knew where the water tables were in their area. They could read the land. They could see the different wadis or the different places. And they could be like, there's going to be water here. And they'll dig down and they'll find water. And you're like, how are you doing that? Like you're doing that with no sonar technology, no GPS, no, you know, survey. Yeah, no surveying. They're just like, there's going to be water here. They dig and they're right. And you're like, how Mm -hmm. is this possible? Um, But so they would do that many times and they dig to the uh, water table and that would be their well. Now that would be 15 feet underground or 100 feet underground. And you would have a rope and you'd throw down your bucket or jar and you'd grab water and you'd start pulling up. Um, The third way would be cisterns. Now this one kind of is less than ideal, but they would do this, especially in places that didn't have a lot of water. They'd dig a hole. They'd put stones around the outside of, or the, the hole to like surround it. And then they put plaster on it, um, which was made out of actually one of the limestones. Um, They learned how to do that. And that would contain water. Now that water would, that would be contained would be the runoff of whatever. So that means rainfall. That means when animals went to the restroom, when people went to the restroom, all of that went into the cistern. And it, after a while they learned like they could let stuff settle at the bottom and they would drink out of it. Now, in context to the Bible, you got to remember, God always likes to play with some of those things that we know. And so uh, a passage that my teacher pointed out to us, but I think is still really relevant to this, would be uh, Jeremiah 2, uh, starting in 13. And God's basically calling out to the Israelites and to the people of uh, Israel, just saying, hey, you guys are being sinners. Please, you know, repent of what you're doing. And in verse 13, he says, uh, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. They dug out cisterns for themselves, crack cisterns that hold no water. Now, many times when we read the Bible, we would just glaze over that. But reading that, what does God mean by living water? And in the context for most Israelites, they would think of a spring. That's what they would think of. It's just this spring of living water that's just coming out of the ground. And what God's saying there is he's like, I'm providing you all that you need, this fresh, clean, cool water, and you're going and digging holes in the ground and that are cracked and they don't even hold the water that you're trying to contain, which is this silty, mucky, really kind of cruddy water that would get you all sick and not really taste good. Um, And that's what God's saying in that passage, um, which is simple, but knowing those two differences, you get to see that stark contract of what God's saying there. So did did you guys talk at all about how that living water would be represented in terms of like even like ritual purity and things like that? Did they get into even like how to water for cleansing and and ritual and even like I remember when I was there, they, they talked a little bit about, you know, like the the Essene communities that they would have. They would have these pools of water because the cleansing was very important, right? Yeah. But they wanted that water to be moving and not stagnant. Did you? That they're one of the ways bit. they tried to represent living water was to keep it moving versus standing water was like impure, but moving water was living. A and, little bit. And so forth. Yeah, a little bit. The interesting thing about at least the Essene community, um, which you probably talked about for the for you know Thad and. Um, 
Did you, you guys get you, to go to Qumran? Yeah, Qumran. That's yeah, okay. So in Qumran, the interesting they, part they is... They were nodding. They're yes. nodding. Yeah, they're nodding. Yes. Um, that happened. Actually, they did use uh, water runoff for their for their water consumption. So they yep. did have cisterns there. They used basically kind of these, not full-on aqueduct systems, but they, they trapped the water um, to go into their communities. So... I wouldn't say I would say they tried to keep it as pure as possible. Right. If you were if you were getting cleansed in a spring, it was right. good. The bigger the bigger thing with ritual purity, uh, which there's something called a mikvah for the, the people listening. Mikvahs are these water bathing rituals, and where you would go fully submersed in the water, and then you'd come out. Um, the big thing was keeping yourself pure from the person next to you, mm. and so if you were going in the water, they had. They engineered it to where it had a divider to where the water of the impure person would not contaminate the person coming out. And so that was the big thing, is being ritually impure from the person next to you, less so whether the water was ritually pure or not, is kind of how I understood it to be. Did they have to wear masks? (laughs) You know, I don't think they had to wear masks, but they did. The Essenes were especially... uh, they they wanted to be so ritually pure that they wanted to be um, they wanted to be completely immersed and not have any clothes on either. So what they did was they wore like basically sheets with a hole in the top to where they'd go under the water. The sheet would rise up. They'd be totally you know exposed under the water, but nobody would see them. And then they pop their hole back out, uh, their head <laughs> out the little hole, and then they come out. And he was like, okay, but that's how they did it, um, which is really interesting looking at their culture and how they. Did that twice a day. Everybody in the community did it at the same time, and it was that they do it before they eat. Now, Noah, you described three different types of water. Um, what about what do they call the water that kind of flows through a mountain, like underneath, and then pops out? Would that just be considered a spring? Yeah, that'd be considered a spring. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Mount uh, Mount Hermon has four major springs. It was kind of like known to, you know, have the water come out, like just have different springs. Really that northern part of Israel, um, a fun thing that I always like pointing out is the Bible a lot of times in the Old Testament says from Dan to Beersheba. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that and sometimes we're like, okay, what does that mean? Dan is the northernmost part of Israel and Beersheba is the southernmost part. And so Dan is that northern part right next to Mount Hermon. And it actually, I think, is it gets forty six inches of rain a year and can be considered a rainforest yeah. in some in some capacity. One of my favorite memories up there in Caesarea Philippi, yeah. you know, where the headwaters of the Jordan River, yeah, um, start there, uh, start yeah. there, and that's just a, an amazing thing because you can't see anything; it's just mountains, and all of a sudden there's there's water, and it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, we were there in January of two thousand nineteen in January. Um, if I'm right, is during the middle of their rainy season. It is, yeah. And so when we went to Dan, it was just pouring, and it was <laughs> it was frankly miserable to, to walk through. But it was it was still very cool to see. And there was a spring there at the time. Mm-hmm. And when you think of spring, you might you might think of a small stream or a creek or something. But this thing, you could hear it. From, yeah. from hundreds of yards away. And then when you get up to it, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, it's gushing. So yeah, it, it really is a stark contrast. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and so that, that's good. Dan to Beersheba uh, uh, is the north to south. What's often the east to west barriers that geographically that, that 
are, are used yeah, here. So. Usually, usually they will use the Mediterranean Sea mm-hmm. and then, you know, the Arabian Desert, I think is what it's called. Um, could be mistaken. But it's just kind of – it is – really what is interesting about Israel is it is this – it's called a land bridge. Uh, a common term that we used in our classes was it's called the land between. If you look at the kind of the geopolitical scope of history, you have really these major uh, dynasties like Egypt or Babylon, Assyria, Mesopotamia, Rome, Greece that are kind of floating in these different areas uh, outside of this land, but they're coming in and conquering the you know, this tiny little strip of land. You're like, why are you doing that? Well, it's mainly because of these trade routes that just run through uh, the east and west side of the Rift Valley that one runs on the coastal plain of uh, next to Mediterranean Sea and one runs uh, just before the, you know, the desert really comes and consumes the land. And this land between is where we see a lot of, you know, conflict happening geopolitically not only but also with just the different places uh in the bible and throughout history and many times i think when we read the bible we think of like king david and king solomon as these big like kings super strong and really when it comes to those those kings in comparison to like pharaohs and the babylonians and the assyrians they were actually kind of small uh, our class used the analogy as they were mouse kingdoms and then the big the bigger kingdoms were the cat kingdoms. And so when the cats went away, the mouses came out to play and they would fight each other. And that's some of the stories we hear of like in Joshua and in uh, first and second Kings. But when the, the big old cats would come back around, they'd usually come up and either squash their fighting or just completely decimate them. And that's kind of how history has framed it. But that, that piece of land is so important to, these different kingdoms to be able to trade with one another, to be able to flourish and to expand because they can't go, they didn't trust going in the sea at that time and they weren't going to wander in the desert. So they said, all right, there's this little strip of land we can go walk in. Let's, let's go take care of it and control it. And it helped. So, so when David kind of brought stability to all the mouse kingdoms and they kind of, they were the, the biggest mouse on the block and then Solomon took it to a little bit, bigger level. So it's quite a big deal mm-hmm. to have the kings of Egypt or some of these other kings come and look at Sol- what Solomon's yeah. doing. That's a rare thing to have Solomon be as prominent he- as he was in that area for that small... Now, it was only for 40 years, right? Yeah. It wasn't a long yeah. period of time, but it was still... Um, it's still... Sig- or is it 80? It was 40. Yeah, they each had 40. Four, pretty yeah, much 40, 40 each, yeah. 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 And so that, that, was, that, that would be a, a pretty big deal... Yeah, I mean, it really for was Israel to be that prominent. For it that. was, and really, why they had enough of that kind of prominence was because they had control of the different trade routes. They had mm-hmm. they had their little hooks in those spots enough to where the different kingdoms really had to kind of respect them and say, "All right, you you have control here, and you have enough of a centralized government that." We can't just come and squash you as, I mean, they could, but it would be a lot more of a process to just go and defeat them. Whereas if it was a decentralized government, many times they were different kings, but they were just kind of kings of their little city. And it's pretty simple to fight a small militia, whereas you have a centralized government and they have horses and chariots and bowmen. That's 
that's more of a process to take care of them. So you usually just make friends with those. People. Right. And one of the things that pops into my mind that's really been prevalent this year in our studies is the idea that Israel is known as the land, mm-hmm. right? And God's promise beginning with Abraham to come out of the foreign country, you know, from originally in the Babylon area up into the north of, of Haran, and then coming down from that area through Israel proper. This is before, um, you know, it became the land of Israel, right? It was the land of the, basically the Canaanites, if you, if you will. The structure of being called out and the promise for Abraham to inhabit the land and have his generations follow and to be numbered as the sands of the sea, only to then have them go into slavery of Egypt for 400 years, mm-hmm. right, for an incredibly long yeah. period of time, and to allow the population growth of all of these wicked nations and false gods to inhabit that particular land for whatever reason God had, and then to bring out this select small group number of people that we've been studying. Mm-hmm. And watch God's mighty hand move yeah. and not lose a battle as long as the people were obedient yeah. to follow him. And that's that's the call back out to the land flowing with milk and honey, which ends yeah. up, you know. So uh, when you're there, Noah, walking through the land and, like you said, from north to south and all these regions, are, are you playing through in your mind those same types of battles? I mean, you mentioned you were all the way up in the north, which is where Abraham's gate is, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely looking at those different battles, uh, and being able to see, like we, I've told my dad about this one, but a fun one, a fun battle to look at is in, uh, Joshua 11. And it's where Joshua, as we know, is he's the protege of Moses and he's been given the task of cleansing the land of all the false gods and all the other tribes that are there. And, it gets to a point in chapter 11 where the king of King Jabin of Hatsor has heard of Joshua and he is what he does is he goes and he finds these different um, cities like Shimron and uh, Madan and uh, Ashaf and uh, Arabah and Chinnereth. He in all these different cities, he goes to their kings, their leaders and says, Hey, let's band together and make sure we don't uh, we don't get defeated by Joshua. What's interesting is when you line up those different cities or those different tribes, they actually kind of create this little like barrier between Hatsor and where Joshua was at. Uh, he was at Gilgal, which is where Jericho is, and so he kind of creates this barrier, this buffer zone for himself. He's like, "All right, you guys defend. I'm gonna like I'm gonna defend with you." But he made a he made a buffer. He instead of just choosing random, he was strategic. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, Joshua wins, and he uh, utterly destroys only Hotzor. And it was a fun conversation we had at that site uh, as we were sitting. We were sitting in the palace of this King Jabin at the time, and we we're looking at it. And one of the people on the trip was actually a professor at uh, Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. His name was uh, Dr. Lawson Stone, and he is a specialist in, uh, I think, Middle Bronze Age. It's one of the Bronze Ages. He's a specialist in, and he was, he analyzed 
not in front of us, but he said he's analyzed this uh, site. And when the Bible says Joshua like utterly destroyed that city, um, he went into it. He was like, they scraped the names of the king and the different gods off of this palace. They, they like made sure the fire was so hot that it like cracked the rock. Um, and it was basalt rock, which characteristics of basalt rock, it is actually lava rock. So it was, they made a fire so hot that it like <laughs> blew up the cat, mm. blew up the palace, which was actually a pretty common thing, mm. but it was so hot that it like cracked the rock and they had a burn line. They burned the, the wood floors off of this place and they, I mean, they destroyed it and seeing that. And then we also talked about how, why they destroyed it. And the reason why they destroyed it was they felt Joshua cursed that, that site specifically where the palace was and said it was taboo um, or, you know, cursed. And so nobody after that point built on that site, that area. And they actually found, which was kind of cool and interesting, they found cultic Jewish uh, worship sites around the palace. And it kind of makes you sit there and in the spiritual side of things, it's like, what was happening at Hotsor that Joshua got so mad to like, absolutely destroy this place and then say don't build there anymore it mm. is like is bad um we don't you know we go there and we see that and that that happens in this passage of scripture we don't we don't get that as much when we read you know the passage just on face value yeah but it it really does make you think about how they went up how they walked around and how they got to that point and what they had to tra- traverse and what on top of that, what was God telling, you know, his people to do in the end to why, why he had to cleanse the land, why he had to do these things. So it's a really, uh, it's a really fun, but also life-changing spiritual moment to be able to look at the land and know the geography of those things. So, you know, it makes me think about, I remember when I was there and uh, we were on our tour and we're talking about, we were at the Sea of Galilee and we were at, at Capernaum, mm-hmm. and uh, that was kind of like a little bit of a home base. It was uh, Peter's hometown. It was ho- kind of Jesus' home base of, of ministry in, mm-hmm. in that area. And uh, we talked about the different cities around the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus curses three cities. I can't They're not coming to me, but he curses three cities around in that region. And to this day, they still know town there is in, that in those, right? yeah. in those I, cities I, I, it, just, it, um, it may have been i'm trying to yeah. I, I, um i'm trying to it's just not coming to me here in in the passage yeah. but i think that that's um that's there just make it's interesting that there is this that we don't necessarily get this territorial nature of things when it comes to like these regions that were it's not just the people there but there was the god they worship mm. you know and so I think about the showdown at Mount Carmel, right, with the Baals yeah. and with Elijah. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, you know, as, as you talked about, Thad, that this is, you know, when you have this mountain region, but it's also in the, it's in the far western, not as north as Hermon, but it's still it's in the northern part and west. And this is where the weather is coming off the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah. So this is where a lot of the storms originate, right? You said the chaos of right. the seas, the abyss, all that stuff. They're originating here, and so, and and Baal 
is is the, the god, god of, of, thunder. Of, of thunder in the storm, right? Yeah. And so here Elijah's challenging, you know, the all these uh, priests of Baal on their home turf, you know. So yeah. there had been a there had been a drought, and and there hasn't been rain for days and days. And he's like, oh, we're never showdown. It'd be kind of like it'd be kind of like the quarterback for Michigan State challenging the entire Michigan football team <laughs> to a battle in the big house. Right. Yeah. You know, one against the whole team. I'm going to beat you, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so they go up on this, and that's where they have this showdown mm-hmm. uh, of the thing. And, and God shows himself, you know, there, and he wins, right, mm-hmm. on enemy territory yeah. and shows Baal's nothing compared to me, right? Um, but when, if you know the geography, you know that stuff, it, it, it just brings that story to even more light, right? Yeah. That, that That's where that took place. It really does. And then yeah. on just on the heels of that, there was a story that uh, we all are all familiar with in the Bible where Jesus casts out um, the demons into the swine. Mm-hmm. And it says yeah. that the it says that this swine, you know, went crazy and they ran down the cliff into the Sea of Galilee. Well, there's no cliffs when you're walking around the Sea of Galilee except in one area. Yeah, except in one spot. Yeah. <laughs> except in the one spot, which is over in the Gentile land where it talks about. And um, yeah. so very, very neat to be right there and say it actually can can fit because people like to try to make arguments against, oh, that couldn't have happened. And, you know, that place never existed. And then geography or um, the geologist will uncover land and yeah, say, oh, oh, there it is. Yeah, archaeology. That's the, that's the word I was looking yeah. for. So, yeah. But... Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, that. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. You know, it's kind of cool when you go there. um, When they start describing how they arrived at the conclusions of a lot of these places, like the first thing that comes to mind. um, I think we were in Magdala, which would Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene was from. I think that was our first experience of kind of going to a a synagogue or at least the ruins of a synagogue. Mm -hmm. And they said, Jesus almost certainly was in this synagogue. Well, how do they know that? The reason they gave was that, um, you know, they uncovered it and and see the outline, but they can know that um, there was a a historical rule that if, if a synagogue was built in a city, if... That, that land where the synagogue sat could be used for no other purpose except for a, an, another synagogue yeah. in the future. And so it was a small enough town that it probably only had one synagogue. And so there, you know, there's your explanation. This is how we arrived at Jesus, you know, preached here. And <laughs> yeah. so that's a really cool, a really cool feeling. And there's other places where they might not be so sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but really yeah, cool. but I know that there's one um, on the steps leading up to the temple in Jerusalem in that area there. Because they, uh-huh. they've done, they they've identified the type of stone that that this area is, and yeah. that was Second Temple period stone. So talk, you want know to talk yeah. about? Yeah, no, I mean to both of you. Well, actually, I'll point this out: that Magdala site. They have just recently, in the past two months, actually uncovered a second synagogue, uh, first century synagogue. Not to negate what you said, because it's almost certain that Jesus spoke there. Because he, he Magdala is kind of like the. Uh, Magdala is really kind of the entrance city to this to, to the Sea of Galilee region. So, but what's interesting is looking at the dynamics of that city. They believe there could have been four synagogues there because of the wow. amount of people in that city, which is interesting because it's like they should have a bigger synagogue, but <laughs> they didn't. And so, that's a super cool thing that we. Well, it's like around here, church on every corner. <laughs> yeah, really. You know, so but that was a fun one to learn. We didn't get to see that new synagogue. It's still under a tarp, uh, but it is only two months. 
and they're just es- excavating it now. But they were. What's cool about Israel is really they always have to have an archaeologist on site because as soon as somebody says let's expand the road or you know oh this building fell down let's you know clear it and build a new one half the time or three quarters of the time they hit a they right. hit a rock and they're like oh great now we have to stop <laughs> and they're excavating and that's what happened they were trying to expand the road to Tiberius and they hit rock and they're like okay let's look at this and they're like oh we just found another synagogue and they stopped their road expansion, but we have a we have another piece of history we get to see. They don't seem to be able to exhaust finding more history every time <laughs> right, they dig. Right. It's amazing. Yeah, no, it's really cool. Um, as for like the uh, as for the uh, like the second temple period stone, really, that's something really interesting about uh, the engineering of those different places. I don't know if uh, y'all were able to go walk the western wall tunnels uh at all at well we did we were at the western wall but did we go through the tunnels you did there a couple was tunnels. one area um that we went in that you know kind of had an overhang that we went in but i don't know uh-huh. if there's a tunnel system past that yeah so there's a there's a trip you can do if you ever go to israel i recommend it um there's a it's called the western wall tunnels and it's a walk where you walk the length of the western wall of the retention wall of the Temple Mount. Now to clarify that, that is the that is the basically the platform that uh, King Herod built or Herod the Great built for the Temple Mount in Israel, and that's where many times when you hear of the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, that's where the Jewish synagogue is that people are praying at and you know hanging out. Uh, at in this area, but the Western Wall Tunnels takes you the length of that wall, and there is to the Second Temple Period Stone conversation. There is a uh, they talk about the different characteristics, and to know a Herod was uh, Herod the Great is an interesting character, um, and you learn to appreciate and despise him at the same time. <laughs> He's really a megalomaniac, uh, but he was a great builder. Uh, he built the Temple Mount. He built multiple cities. But a characteristic of his stones that he built with was they have like a border on them, kind of like a frame, a picture frame, and then a very smooth front. And so as after three weeks of doing, you know, looking at rocks and being interested about rocks and the Bible, you can see a second temple period, Herod, Hasmonean stone. You can just be like, yep, there it is. Yeah. Okay, cool. We're in Herod's area. Um, but... There is a bedrock in the southern steps of that temple wall area where it's right in front of the doors that are entering and exiting the temple um, that are closed up now. And it's pretty certain that um, people would have walked on that. And so naturally, if Jesus was in the temple, you can, as my second course professor liked to say, he was from Virginia, he would say, (laughs) Horseshoes and hand grenades, uh, this is probably where Jesus stood, and it's uh, good enough. Uh, it's about government work for me, so it's good enough for me. <laughs> he said, there's a God in Israel, and he'd keep going. And he was a funny guy. But um, I would say, like, those are places you would say, like, wow, like, just take a second and look back. That's where Jesus stood. Like, I'm looking and I'm standing on a place that Jesus stood, yeah. uh, which is super cool. Well, let's get let's try to get a little bit practical for, for some of our listeners, and especially for those people who haven't been to Israel. Yeah, for sure. Um, what can we do? So, I, I, I think we're reading our Bible, and we get all these different place names. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
what what can we do to just start helping us with these place names? Well, one is get a Bible dictionary or, or use your, you know, find a good source. Don't just Google everything. When you Google something, find that you've got a good, reputable, scholarly source yeah, that you're getting course. this from. So, you know, University Press, Nav Press, um, Baker, you know, a good evangelical publisher that's going to get good scholarship, you know. And when you find that, you can and you can use, you know, Google the name place and, and find out what it is. I mean, I, I like the Logos Bible software. It's good, reliable software if you, if you use some of that stuff. Or just, or just break down, spend 35 bucks, and get yourself a good Bible dictionary, you know. Yeah. And that way you can look up a place name, and it will tell you about it, yeah. right? And then, I, you know, find a map. And look where it is on the map, and try to try to take the time to do something. That that in and of in and of itself can be just a good starting place, right? Look up the names, look up their significance, look yeah. up where they are. What are some other tools that we would suggest to use to to help with with reading our Bibles? Anything coming to mind on you? I mean, definitely. I mean, I just echoing reading. I, I have had a map next to my, you know, study area mm-hmm. ever since. And probably more often than not, I am Googling it because it's a little bit faster yeah, than right. pulling that out. Um, but again, I've I've been there. And right. so I, I can't emphasize enough, if you have the opportunity to go, um, you know, there are ways there are ways to do it and make it happen. Um, and it, it totally brings in a, a new light. Um, um, but having been there and and you know, I come across a name of a place that I'm not familiar with, Googling that to to see in relation to where I did go, the right. 12 different locations. Okay, that's that far from here. It probably looks like this. That's really helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I'm thinking of right now is how the 12 tribes ended up seeding themselves in the land of Israel. So they're all placed throughout the territory. So you'll have Benjamin, up in the north uh, northeast of the area and in Judah, you know, down in the, near the land of Jerusalem. And so when you're reading um, your scriptures, it'll it'll help broaden the territory, almost like a county as opposed to a city, because there's so many cities, and depending upon the area that you're in, they might be right on top of each other, and it won't show it necessarily right. on the map, but they're almost always going to mention something about um, the tribal area or, or where, where it is, they'll say from the land of Benjamin or whatever. We're doing that through Samuel was helping right. quite a bit as well. So that's that's something just as a key. There, there's a lot of different uh, tricks of the trade, so to speak. But the idea is just to just to start with something, and you'll find yourself intrigued, which will spark more and more. Yeah. Yeah. One other note it 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 brings intention to the authorship of of each book when they when they mention a name, it wasn't haphazardly. Right. right there, it's there for a reason, exactly. and and if you if you aren't in the practice of trying to search out um, where that is in relation to other cities and understanding the area um, you're talking about in, in the scripture you're reading, you know, so having that understanding, it, it, okay, th- this was here, they wrote this, they're giving us context, right. and I want to understand that context because it's gonna solidify it in my mind, give me a better picture of what's right. going on, and I can understand the application better. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I can't emphasize um, what's been said enough. And really where I would come and say one more thing towards it would be, I'd use an example from my life. 
uh, in the way that growing up for me, I always think of like, what was your favorite celebrity athlete person like that? For me, it was Drew Brees was my favorite uh, athlete growing up. And I knew where he grew up in what state. I knew where he played professional football and where that was located. And I knew where he played college football and where that was located. Um, Those are things that I know about that person and I don't know him. In the same way, I look at my Bible and I think of the relationship I have, you know, with Jesus, the relationship I have with God, and the Scripture allows you to know those things. But like being wanting to know, like what is what is where's Bethlehem? Where's it located? What does it look like? You know, what what was the dynamics of that city? How big was it? Um, in the same, as looking at Nazareth or you know Jerusalem. I know I know where. Jesus grew up, how big it was. It was this little 200-person village that he would have walked over this hill and gone and worked in this other city that was being massive uh, Hellenized city that uh, King Antipas was building at the time. He would have walked over there with his dad and helped build the city. And then he would have walked back and gone to bed. Um, But knowing that and understanding things and getting to know the God who, you know, sent his son and died for you on the cross and raised three days later. We, we know those things and we feel those things, but having a relationship with him, it's like, you know, you know, your spouses or your girlfriend or your boyfriend's like hometown, you know, those things, you know, the family they grew in, the house they grew up in, being able to see those things in the same way as seeing your Bible, like having that desire to just know Jesus in that way. Um, It's easy when you go over to Israel and you get to see it firsthand, Mm -hmm. but you can also do that by reading your Bible um, and looking at maps and okay. looking stuff up and just having that passion to right. do those things is really important as well. Right. Well, th- as you were saying, I think it, the familiarity with the territory is like having a certain comfort with the hometown, right? It's a yeah. war- it's a warming feeling. And the um, authentication of the locations uh, prove out the Bible accuracy so much as well. So that helps. And it also places context to the stories that we read. And when we want to do proper Bible interpretation, what's, what's the king context, right? So context, context, context. Well, the location has a lot to do with that. Like you were saying, how how far is it to Bethlehem? What was the Emmaus road when they're taking that walk? Oh, it's about seven miles. Well, okay. Well, what is that? Have you walked seven miles today? Well, maybe 25,000 steps. So think about (laughs) that and the Bible study that Jesus gave for that period of time about all the places that he was, uh, you know, written about in the old Testament. Uh, Amazing, amazing thoughts to uh, just exemplify your, your study all the further, I think. Yeah. Uh, one other thing, um, just to touch on a little bit, is mentioning you know the the fact that Jesus, you know, we all call him a carpenter. A lot of people think he was maybe more, almost more like a stonemason, a tecton, yeah. yeah, and so forth. And his dad helping build the, the Roman city. That you guys got to see a couple. Did you guys see a couple of the Roman ruin places like oh, Bichion yeah. or yes. anything like that? And so, um, so it's, it's amazing just how much Rome had. Had influenced, and when you talk about the Decapolis in the in in the New Testament, that you know mm-hmm. ten Roman cities in this mm-hmm. northern region, kind of on the west on the eastern side of Sea of Galilee and yeah. and and Jordan River and so forth. But so that the fact that 
again, this you talk about the the trade routes, and this is very important for Rome in that time too, and and so forth. And so, just um, amazing the technology of the time, yeah. right? And, and what that was to be able to have, to be able to distribute water, you know, to be able to have roads yeah. and to to build what they built. Uh, what would you say in, in seeing that? How did that influence what you thought about God's timing? You know, it talks about you know, in, in God's timing that he brought Jesus at just the right time, you know, to, to bring in his kingdom and so forth. What, how did seeing that and experience that shed light on, on just kind of the timing of Jesus' birth and, and ministry and so forth? Well, going back uh, a little bit to the timing that I mentioned earlier with the 400 years in Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. And so what is God's plan for Israel, a chosen people, that would take 400 years for him to execute his plan? I don't have time for that in my mind, you know, (laughs) but it shows, first of all, the patience of God, Mm -hmm. that he works his divine plan according to his own schedule. We We speak of how the scriptures say, a day for the Lord is as a thousand years to us, right? Because he lives outside and exists outside of time. So as we run through the course of time, which is basically how we walk through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's there's some chronology to it, of course. Uh, Jesus Christ being placed in the middle of that history as far as we're concerned, right? 2,000 years um, one way and 4,000 years the other direction, but... How God allows his revelation to be built precept upon precept, he gives, a, he gives a little bit of information, which is enough for salvation to Abraham, right? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So we have salvation to Abraham before he even knows that a Messiah is going to be born, right? But yet Abraham um, has one of the best foreshadowings of Christ and his son Isaac, mm-hmm. you know, as his one and only beloved son that he is called to sacrifice up on the mountain, right? And in the, the name of that mountain, in the Mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. I mean, as we as we look for, um, did they attest to that maybe being the same mountain as yeah. where Christ was crucified? Uh, that Mariah. Mount Moriah was also uh, Golgotha. Yeah. Um. More so that in the groups that I talked with, more so it was the conversation of Mount Moriah being uh, the Temple Mount. Okay, uh, was what it was, but really, not to kind of to the academic world. It's like, how could we really know what Mount Moriah was? Because you know, it could have been there. It could have been Golgotha. It could have been uh, Mount Gerizim, is what all the Samaritans thought it was. You know, really, the kind of fun dynamics of that culture and time. Uh, even now in the modern times with uh, with the with Islam and Judaism and Christianity is we see where there's a significant event like the crucifixion of Jesus at Golgotha uh, in Jerusalem they also have underneath uh, where Jesus was crucified they believe where Adam was buried um, in the same they also believe that the Jews no, I and, just want to you said Adam 
Adam. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> yes. So these this is an interesting thing uh, dynamically and culturally that happens. The Jew uh, the Jewish uh, tradition believes that Adam was buried on Mount Moriah where the temple is, and Islam believes, you know. That's where Muhammad went up on the rock and, or to talk to God. Um, they also believe that uh, Ishmael was buried there. There's, and you know, I'm not certain on all these facts, but I do believe that this is, there's this uh, desire within culture to connect yourself to um, as far back in history as possible, how deep your layer right. goes. Now, and there'd so, be maybe a little bit of what, what we try to do as... Um, Orthodox believing Christians is not become superstitious about something, yeah, exactly. right? So, yeah. so whether it was pinpointed at this location or the, or the other, the idea that I was just getting to was the idea yeah. of um, that again, location matters and it's historical. Oh, yeah. And how how is um, Pastor Matt here was just talking about you know Jesus being placed in in the pinnacle of history at a certain place and time mm-hmm. is, is all relative, even yeah. even to the idea of out of out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that context was originally meant for Israel. Right. In Exodus, yeah. In Exodus. I mean, even in a practical within that, uh, towards your question, looking at God putting Jesus in the time of Rome being in control of the land, it's such an interesting conversation because if you look at the geopolitical uh, boundaries of that area— Jesus was a mastermind at jumping the border of between different geopolitical regions because he'd start catching a crowd. And the the bad thing in that time with Rome was you didn't want to draw attention to yourself unless you had good connection with the Roman government, which Jesus did not. And so when he started getting crowds and he was baptizing people and he was starting to grab, like, have all these disciples and crowds of people follow him, the Roman government would notice that in that region. So if he was near Jerusalem, he'd just jump the border over to Galilee, and there's a completely different guy running the, the show over there, and they don't they can't get him. And so he would do that for three years. He would jump from, you know, Golanitis to, to Decapolis to Galilee and uh, to Judea and Perea, and he would just do that, and he would just be doing his ministry. He'd be doing his thing, but also just avoiding these governmental powers until like their suspicion of him died down. It's such a we don't think about that, but he was he was so on top of those things. And of course, that's like the humanity of him, but I think that is a really interesting um aspect of why God like may have chosen that time. Yeah, so it was it was after those numerous wars and all those um large powers battling and taking over land Correct me if I'm wrong. It was a relatively stable time, right? It was a relatively yeah. stable time where Rome is in control, yeah, and stable enough for Jesus to go around and preach, and ruffle feathers here and ruffle feathers here, yeah. And you know the Pharisees were now a big part of of yeah the the the. Well, what you just said, uh, you know, the stable time in Rome. I mean, Pax Romana was right. the big signal, and so. Jesus being claiming to be the peace as opposed to Rome right. yeah. was another slap in Caesar's face, so to it speak. It was, you know? and what also comes with that is the simple of though it was a stable time, there it was still fresh the the revolts. Like 
in Jesus's lifetime, there were four different times there was a messianic figure within Judaism in the second temple period, one including a guy named Jesus, because Jesus was a common name in that time, who tried to take o- like tried to uh, take over the land through um, force, um, which in in the Bible was that's such an interesting conversation. Um, many times because that happened during Passover. Um, they would always try to take over in that time. But what was interesting with Jesus was each time those usually happen, um, the conquering Messiah, um, I'm putting quotations around the, the, sa- the name Messiah, would usually cross over uh, the Mount of Olives, which in context with the Bible goes back to Ezekiel 10, where the presence of God exits um, over the Mount of Olives. And so when Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives uh, in the great uh, in Palm Sunday, as we mm-hmm. naturally um, talk about, I explained this to my dad. This is so great. I'm just going to yeah. jump in because I so wanted to say we need to talk about Mount of Olives. Yeah, and, and so I'm so glad it's leading <laughs> no. into it. Yeah. So this is a really cool thing. I heard it from a buddy of mine uh, who I, I I trust his theology and definitely would be fun to look into yourself. You know, if you do, but so Jesus enters in over the Mount of Olives. Now, this is a common thing that's been seen. Actually, uh, we have different, we have uh, pseudepigraphal and apocalyptic, or not apocalyptic, apocryphal literature. Um, Now you hear those words and you freak out, so I'm just going to calm you for a second. These are are writings that are happening in the the in-between or the 400 years of silence between... um, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Um, things are happening during that time. One of the big things is the Maccabean Revolt. That's where we get Hanukkah from. For right. um, And John uh, Maccabeus, uh, probably said his name wrong, sorry, uh, he enters in over the Mount of Olives, and he walks in and he cleanses the temple of the Gentiles at that time. And so that's happening, and then Jesus is doing the same thing. And when John Maccabeus did that, he he started a revolt, he cleansed the temple, and he kicked out and the Gentiles at the time, and they had an independent nation. And so Jesus has been getting these crowds of people, and he's been talking about, you know, the kingdom of God coming. And so he enters in over the Mount of Olives, and he enters in on a cult. And so what happens is, is all the people of in the area, they grab palm branches and they start waving palm branches. Now, when we think of that, we're like, oh, let's give the kids palm branches. We'll wave them. You know, Jesus is coming and it's super fun. Then he's going to die. Palm branches in that time was the flag of the zealots. And the zealots were the aggressive revolutionists of the Jewish uh, faith. They were the people who were going and stabbing Romans in the streets and running away and trying to start up all these That's the wars. first time I heard that about the yeah. palm branches, yeah. by the way. Yeah, I learned so. this too recently. And so when they're starting to wave those, it's not just this happy, fun thing. It's like, no, we're starting a war. And so Jesus comes in. He cleanses the temple of not the Gentiles, but of the priests who were the ones defiling the temple at the mm-hmm. time. And so that happens, and it's really starting to stir up these moments. And the Mount of Olives is kind of that big trope of, so Jesus enters in over that, and then that in uh, Revelation is spoken about, Jesus is going to enter back in in the second coming of doing those, uh, of coming back over the Mount of Olives. Mm. 
I'm not going to get an eschatology at the time, <laughs> but that is, it's it's this sign in this place of um, God really kind of entering into really make His kingdom this sound place. But you know, when we read the, that's a big thing I've I've really uh, read about the you know Palm Sunday is it's not this. Uh, it's not just this fun thing of like, oh yeah, Jesus is here. We love him. He's been, you know, creating miracles. This is, no, this is our new king we're trying to dub and he's going to come conquer Rome, uh, which naturally the zealots were wanting him to do that by force and by the sword. Um, but as we see when Jesus gets captured, he doesn't do it by the sword. When Peter goes and cuts off the ear of the, the servant, who's also, I believe, I can't remember his name, do you remember the? I don't. Yeah, but uh, his name. I, I did. I wondered. I kept. Um, now that you said Maccabees, I'm, I'm, I messed up. Something, something I know. Like but his yeah. his name, if we can find it. But his name, I believe, actually is he's the servant of the high priest. His right. name right. means kingdom. Oh. And so he cuts. So Peter cuts off the ear of a guy named Kingdom, and Jesus says, "We're not gonna, we're not gonna conquer, you know, the kingdom by by the sword, but by by the spirit." And so that's, Malchius, Mel, Malchius. Yes, Malchius. And <laughs> so when that happens in that moment, we also have to look at the character of Judas real quick. Um, Judas is a zealot as well. Um, he's actually an assassin for the zealots because that's what Iscariot means. And he, in that moment, likely was trying to invoke there to be this some this kind of war happening. He wasn't just this greedy, like stingy guy. He was trying to. Start put Jesus in a corner to start fighting. And when Peter cuts off the servant's ear and he says, we're not fighting by the sword, Judas, as a devout zealot, realizes he has just sold his rabbi into the authorities, which was a cardinal sin to Jews at that time. And so he goes and, as any good zealot would do, he'd go and kill himself because that's what the zealots did. So okay, that's so really I've, wow. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got chills all the way up because of all of this conversation. Yeah. So this is amazing. Um, but to overlap uh, Jesus um, ushering in the kingdom in that manner, and if you just go back in the previous parts, if you just read the Gospel of John account, for example, there's several times where not necessarily the zealots, but it'll, it'll say the people tried to take him in and usher him as king. And he said, yeah. my time is not yet. yet. Yeah. And then finally, you know, he not only says that here's the time, he sets up the entire thing. Hey, go get a colt for me. I'm going to ride in on this colt. And he's establishing yeah. exactly how this is going to ha- enter. But overlaid with this, this kingdom entry and the zealots in the palm branches is, of course, um, you mentioned Palm Sunday, yeah. but it is... Lamb Selection Day in in Passover. In yeah. Passover, yeah. right? So you, yeah. you have the Passover. It's the mm. 10th of Nisan, and we have the lamb being selected, and he's being ushered in. It should be the high priest that's bringing the lamb in, and the people would be, the Jewish people would be celebrating, you know, Hosanna is the Lord, praise be the Most High, and, and singing that song. This is the day that the Lord has made. Yeah. Will rejoice me glad. And it's poignant to Christ's entry. Yeah. You know, and so this is very near, as Matthew <laughs> knows here, to my heart on the feast days of Israel. But to overlap that with the entering of the king, we have um, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king. Yeah. And we have the lamb of God. Yeah. Simultaneously, of course. I mean, yeah. as only Jesus would ever fulfill. Yeah. And I mean, you sit there and, I mean, 
we can, that's kind of like really the theology coming behind it, but also seeing the cultures of the second temple period, what different sects of Judaism looks like. You learn those things, but it, I mean, really, again, to reiterate what everybody said, if you can go to Israel and mm-hmm. see that place, it, it makes right. it even more real. You see that it was a 15-minute walk from the Mount of Olives to the temple, right. you know. Well, that was part of what I was going to ask you when I was thinking about it's time to talk about the Mount of Olives because I'm sure there's a lot of people that think about the Mount of Olives that haven't been there yet. So explain, Noah, um, and maybe even Aiden, your input on on what you experience when you're sitting in the Mount of Olives, because it's it, you're not it's not flat right there. Oh, it's yes. not a, it's not a grove of flat trees. Yeah. Um, what what's also fun about the Mount of Olives is that's where uh, all the tombs. Like I, if you've ever seen pictures of Israel, there's these there's this uh, necropolis, and that's just a city of like dead people is what it's called, and that just goes and wraps around the Mount of Olives, and it kind of flows into and up onto the the Temple Mount. And so it's not a it's not a grove of trees. It is it is literally a grove of dead people. Um, and what's fun is Jesus was probably preaching either on the Temple Mount or on the Southern Steps, and he he makes a comment towards the Pharisees. He says, "You're whitewashed tombs. You're you know you're white and clean on the outside, but you're you know dead and dark and grimy on the inside." He, he I can just see Jesus pointing over to the tombs mm-hmm. right over there because they were there, and he was like, "Look, you're like these." That's what he's saying, like, and that's super real to see that. Um, being on top of that mountain and just kind of looking over the landscape, I see why Jesus liked hanging out there so much because it, you see the city and you go in and you can see why he he's like looking at his father's house just and where he would be weeping over the city. Yeah, weeping right? over right. the city. So the Mount of Olives is on the south side of the uh, eastern side. The eastern, eastern kind of south side. Of okay. The and so, um, as you look down from the Mount of Olives, that goes down to a valley, a particular valley. Ki- uh, Kishon. The, the Kidron. The, the Kidron Valley. Yeah. Okay. Kidron. The Kidron Valley. And so, uh, you can see down through the valley, but you can also see across. You can see the Temple Mount right there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's an amazing view. So, yeah. do you remember um, experiencing that? Yeah. Well, that's you know when we when we were at the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives is what they believe to be the Garden of Gethsemane, yeah, too, right? So, you know, I don't know if Jesus knew on on the day he was entering whether this would be, you know, the coming days he would be killed, but he mm-hmm. surely knew in Gethsemane, right? So he's going down and coming back up, and you can look over the city while he's in the garden um, preparing himself right. to be to be sacrificed. Yeah. So just a, a really cool scene. It is, and it's also just back to the tombs, is yeah. why were all the tombs there? Well, and still to this day, yeah. is that because they believed that when the Messiah came, he was going to enter through that, and that he wanted, and that there would be a resurrection, right? And they wanted to, they wanted to be raised and go. They want to be the first ones to go in with yeah. Jesus. Well, we got with the Messiah, yeah. right? You know <laughs> yeah, that that was the, the thing, and so yeah. that's why all those are there because it was it yeah. was that gate and that the gate beautiful yeah. that, that they would go. Th- go into and so they wanted to be buried there because they wanted to be when they were raised from the dead they wanted to be the first ones to go in to the to the city yeah to to the garden of gethsemane it's really kind of this what's fun is is that's where jesus that was jesus's prayer spot um that's a fun thing to think about is as jesus's ministry continues in the bible there are spots where it just says jesus went into a desolate place and he prayed 
And another spot my group kind of like just speculated on when we were there was uh, there's a hillside between Bethsaida and Capernaum. It's pretty, you know, uh, you know, uh, desolate. It's it's just a kind of like nice little quiet spot. And we're like, well, Jesus might have just come up here and in between mm. these all the people wanting him to heal and preach and do all these things, fight, debate him, and he's just like, I'm going to come up here and pray. That's Gethsemane was that was his spot for that. And a fun story for me is when I was there, uh, I went and I spent time uh, in the Church of All Nations, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is presumed to be. And I was just sitting there and I was reading the accounts of Gethsemane, and ironically, I actually did kind of reach a state of peacefulness that I, I think I fell asleep for a little while, <laughs> which is funny because that's what the disciples did. Yeah. Um, and so, Can't you stay awake a little while longer? Yeah, yeah, it was funny for me. I woke up and I was like, I was like, I kind of just did what they did. Um, but it was super cool and fun, like special moment for me. Uh, but yeah, the Mount of Olives is just such a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful sight because it's also just this, is this uh, in a totally geological type and uh, in typography of the land? Um, it is a huge protection for the city of Jerusalem. It is this. Uh, it's this barrier for for basically its entire eastern side of the city, and it it protects them. Um, but it also is symbolizing you know this this entering in of the kingdom. It's mm-hmm. it's a very it's a very beautiful place. Um, in the whole grand scheme of the Bible. Right. So it's very interesting if you read Mark 11, that you just, the location, because this is about the triumphal entry and then you have the cleansing and everything. But it's interesting that Jesus starts at Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Yeah. And then it's from there. Then he goes into the temple and just kind of scouts. He goes in on the, in the triumphal entry and there he kind of scouts things out and then he leaves again. And goes back to Bethany, and then he goes back in the next day to to clean to cleanse the temple. Yeah, right. And then comes, and so it's interesting that like that kind of serves as his home base. Is is there in Bethany? I think he's he's staying with he's probably staying with Lazarus and yeah. and uh, Mary and and so forth yeah, yeah. out there, right? And so, but it's like he scouts. He's like he's looking and seeing the city, mm-hmm. and he know in the temple, and he knows the corruption of of the thing. But he so he, yeah, and he enters priest. in, you know, on the donkey. And they sing of saying, but he he leaves and then he comes back and cleanses and then he goes back out and then on the in, in before he enters in you have the whole parable of the fig tree, mm-hmm. right? You have the barren fig tree and it's barren not because it didn't have anything, but it had leaves. It had it looked green. It looked like it should have fruit. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, it's the season when you should have the little little like precursor to the to the fig for that you could actually take them off and eat them knowing that there was, and if there was a lot of them, you know that there was going to be a good harvest in the future. Okay. Right. So he, so here's, and so it looks green. It looks like everything's great, but there's nothing there for them to yeah. take off and eat. Yeah. Right. And so the, the, the tree symbolizes the temple. It's Passover. It looks like it's fruitful. There's, it's full of business. There's all these people coming and it's a good time. And it looks like everything's great, but because of the corruption of the chief priests, he knows there's no fruit. And as he goes in on the donkey, he looks around and he sees all the, the, what are they doing in the court of the Gentiles where the nations should be able to come and learn about Yahweh? It's filled with, with the, the, the priests are just getting rich off of the people yeah. right? in the very place yeah. where the nations are supposed to come and be able to see 
what what Yahweh's all about. So when yeah. he comes back the next day, he comes loaded for bear, right? <laughs> he comes and 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 he cursed the victory when they come back out from him doing that, and they're they're going back up to Bethany. They notice the fig tree again, and what it is, the fig tree's withered, right? Because it's just a prophecy of, of what what's going to happen, right? The yeah. temple's going to be torn down. And he actually instructs them on prayer. If you pray and ask for this mountain to be thrown into the sea, it will be done for you. And, what, and yeah. I think he's pointing to the temple. I'm, this mountain mm. is very likely the temple mount itself, right? Yeah. Just like the fig tree was cursed, that temple's going to be destroyed we're you starting know. to build up to a little bit of a frenzy here. Okay, no, no one's a jump in. No, 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 you're good. I, I like that one. Um, they also noted that Jesus is probably also alluding to when he's talking about this mountain to be thrown into the sea, alluding to uh, Herod the Great as well. Because yeah, on the right. top of Mount uh, the Mount of Olives, you can see uh, Herodium, which is Herod's, uh, one of his big cities he built and where his mausoleum was. And where he literally chopped off half of a mountain, put it on top of another mountain, just so he could have be even higher than Jerusalem. Because again, he's a megalomaniac. And mm-hmm. if you've met one of those people, you know what I'm talking about. Or you know uh-huh. of one. Um, but it's it's an interesting allusion to that and what you said, like really just this big this big moment of Jesus like entering in and Really, he is, he's coming after those chief priests um, to where those were the people who were calling for his head in the end. It, it wasn't so much of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the, all the people of Israel. It was really just those chief priests, which is an interesting thought. Um, because when we read the passage of Jesus in front of, with Pilate, we hear the crowds are calling for you know Barabbas to be freed and Jesus to be crucified. We think of a... 2,000 group people, it's actually probably just the, the chief priests and the elected officials of of Jew, of Jew the Jews to, like, say, hey, we want them. And it's, you know, it's yeah. an interesting, yeah. it's an interesting yeah. thing to see. He really kind of comes after those corrupt people. And Yeah, he is. He's definitely, he's going against the corrupt people. And, and interesting, though, that even when you do pray for, for those corrupt systems and power structures to be torn down, to be thrown into the sea— whether it's Herod or the chief priest or the combination of them, yeah. right? He still says, and when you pray, forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very interesting that even though, yeah, it's okay to pray for these corrupt systems. So, so whatever, whoever you think's corrupt, whether it's the left, the right, both, you know, in our society or whatever organization or, or um, you know, uh, industry yeah. or whatever that you think's corrupt and you praying for God's justice, pray for it. But when you pray, you also need to forgive the very people in those leadership positions. Mm, yeah. We need to have a heart for them, you know, too, that, that, you know, because we're so prone to look at the speck when we got our own law. Right. right? Yeah. Well, you know? yeah, it's, so. it's summed up in the, to pray for our enemies, right? Yes. And what right. does the scripture say that we were before Christ saved us? Enemies of God. We were enemies of yeah, God, yeah, too. Right. Yeah. yeah. So just a couple little notes, and um, to the, think about, talking about the Temple Mount, it always talks about going up to the temple, yeah. yep, yep. which is interesting because, because you do have that valley in between. Because even mm-hmm. you could be probably be even higher up on the Mount of Olives at some yep. point. Yeah. But yeah. to get to the temple, you have to go down and go back up, right? right? Yeah. And, and so, so... Yeah, that's an interesting note um, because also we think about it and it can... 
in the context of kind of we've talked about maps, hopefully those who are listening can kind of get a little bit of a picture of things. When we hear go down in our culture, south, like we think go south, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> an interesting note is when you talk to somebody from the Middle East, many times they don't know where north is. They, they don't really have that concept. Um, but somebody from Dan, which is in the northernmost part of Israel, still went up to Jerusalem. Um, granted, when the, we talk about that, there is the valley that you go up, but it's also uh, elevated in spiritual importance yes, is, the, is right. the temple. And so they would go up right. to the temple no matter where they were from. And that's a fun note for me because I always thought Jericho, and it talks about Jesus, uh, uh, when Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan, and it talks about the road down to Jericho um, from Jerusalem, I always thought that Jericho was south of Jerusalem. <laughs> and then I got there and I was like, it's east? I was like, this makes no sense. <laughs> but it is in elevation lower and in import, spiritual importance lower, uh, which is a fun <laughs> little note. Um, that well, that's an interesting thing, too. You know, Dad and I have talked about this before, maybe on some of the podcasts, but the whole idea of high places. Yeah. Where did worship took place in the high places? Because that's where the the gods resided or that's where you did. And so... Even the the rival gods were usually on other mountains, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so it talks about the Mount the Mount Zion or the mountain of the Lord is the highest mountain, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's not. On no, it's it really not isn't. the highest mountain no. geographically, but it is in terms of importance and spiritually because right. that's where Yahweh resides. His he is higher than all the others, right? Yeah. And so it is. So when it talks about Zion being the highest mountain, it's it's talking about importance. It's not talking about no. It's, it's not. Yeah. It's not the elevation. I mean, really, right. it's it's kind of surprising. You look at it and you're like, wow, it's Jerusalem's in a little bit of a bowl, which all uh, in a like geographic bowl, which makes it interesting. Further, because looking at the culture of the people, if you're surrounded by all these different hills, it is kind of been shown throughout history if. If somebody comes over those hills, you don't have a lot of time to know whether they're friend or enemy. And so those people who live in more hillier areas are usually less um, understanding. For, they're very much more sp- suspicious. And sometimes that's great because you're protected, but in other ways you're isolated. Uh, and that's a dynamic that we see within the Israelites. They're very much more traditionalists. They don't have a lot of change happen within their, their culture. And that contrasts them with other groups that are more open. Uh, the, the Israelites who are in the Judean hill country, at least, or up in northern Galilee, but compared to the Philistines, they're interacting with people every day going through their land. And it changes how they interact. It changes how they see their gods and how they see other people. You know. Yeah, that's really great. Um, as we come to a close, uh, why don't we go around and just – as you want to encourage others that are listening uh, when we'll finish with, with, with Noah, maybe because I'm sure he's got something else important that he's going to say, because it's all fresh in his mind. Mm-hmm. But Aiden, for you, uh, what, what do you, what highlight or what thought is coming to mind as far as Israel or as far as understanding the, the land and, and the Atlas of the land for people? Would you recommend? Uh, I feel like I feel like we've you know I'm just going to be kind of repeating myself here, um, but just having 
that closeness in your mind um, with with the picture of each different area is it brings clarity and color to scripture that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Even I mean, yes, I, I would definitely encourage listeners to to do their own studies with maps and w- looking on Google. But I mean, nothing will nothing will come close to to actually being in the physical area. It's just I mean, it's just a blessing that we were able to go do that. Um, but there's there's a richness and and it gives you sympathy for different scenarios. You can you can understand what people were seeing and and going through in that time. Um, and a lot of that has been preserved for tourism's sake. Um, right. And so, but, but that's, that's good because we can actually still, still see how a lot of that looked and how people would have behaved in that time. And so it, it's just, it's just a richness to, to biblical study, um, gave me more desire to, to be in the word, to, to dig deeper on certain passages, to try to understand context more, um, and, um, make me appreciate the providence of God more and how he worked every person, how he had Pontius Pilate there at the right time and how Rome was in place, you know, and crucifixion was was the means by which they they killed, you know, the people that had, had done wrong. You know, that that was the symbology he wanted. That was the, the, the death of Jesus he had ordained from the beginning of time, unknown to us until it happened. Um, but everything had to fall in place according to his providence for that to happen. And so seeing that, uh, it just takes your breath away. Yeah, very good. Uh, I would just add for, uh, for myself, uh, of course, if you have the opportunity to go to Israel, please make that happen. It'll, it'll change your world and the way that you view your readings of the Bible and the context uh, therein. But also, uh, there's so much in the scripture that has to do with the locations when it comes to, we talked about Abraham and Mount Moriah, but even uh, judgment places like Sodom and Gomorrah and where people are traveling and the locations such as the Dead Sea, um, how you can have a an oasis such as Angeti just off of the the worst part of the land out there is beyond imagination until you see it. It's like, well, that, this is crazy, right? Um, and... Uh, certainly, it just helps to give context to your studies. So, uh, without beating the horse to death, you know, read the Bible with an atlas or a map next to you, as we've been saying all along. Right. Pastor Matt? Yeah, and I would say, too, don't lose sight of the, the fact that there's the different ways we can read the Bible. Sometimes you just need to read bigger sections and you don't, you don't stop. But, but we need to have those times when we can read slowly. You know, and we do need to to be inquisitive, and I think that's one of the things that is important. Is you know, especially when it comes to the Old Testament, uh, and and all the, in a lot of these places and, and regions and what's going on, and and it's okay not to understand. You know, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to to try to figure things out because it doesn't mean we don't trust the scriptures. It just means we're 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 in a different part of the world, right, that we're not familiar with. But we're also dealing, as Noah talked about different times, different just epochs of time 
when you had different technologies and you had different, you know, the Bronze Age versus another age versus this and and what they were available to. And, and understanding that's going to help us understand the Bible. I mean, if I were to talk to all of us who have lived in Michigan a while and I talk about traveling up nor- north and going to Traverse City and then later in the day I, I went over to Tawas, you would have understand a little bit of understanding of what I traversed that day. Um, but someone from Texas wouldn't, right? Right, and they're speaking English in the same period of time right. that we are. But I can just use those terms, and you know, I went north. I went from Brighton. I traveled north. You know, three and a half hours to Traverse City. I drove another three, you know, two and a half hours across the, from the the northern western part of the state to the northern eastern part of the state, and then back. You know that just by be giving those names, but if you're in Texas, you don't know that, yeah. you know, unless you've been there. And there's something about just being inquisitive and, and knowing that, that this is, this is what the biblical writers are, ta- are doing. And they're giving those places sometimes just for direction, but sometimes, you know, I also know that Traverse City is, is a place where they grow a lot of cherries and they have a cherry festival, right? <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes that could be very important in the Bible. If it's talking about a particular city, it's also telling you, they know what's associated with that city. And right, so, yeah. so just learning that stuff, becomes, it brings a richness to the conversation of the Bible and the narrative that's there. And knowing that, that, that symbology, you know, of maybe when it's talking about Traverse City, maybe it's talking about the Northwest, or maybe it's just talking about cherries, <laughs> right? And yeah. the context of Scripture's context yeah. being king, knowing that information can lead a lot to the understanding of what's happening in the Scriptures, Right. So I that's mean, what I would say. Be inquisitive. No, I completely, I, I affirm and encourage you to hear what has all been said here today. The last thing I would put out there would be that when you read the Bible, many times we kind of have this habit of wanting a moral to the story or an application to my life of what's being said. And sometimes the reality is, is that's, that, that isn't always needed. Um, sometimes you can just read the Bible and read it for every time the word, you know, Capernaum shows up or every time the word living water shows up or Mount of Olives, Temple Mount, you know, all these different words that we've kind of discussed today, read into those and you won't find a conclusion or an application for those, but you'll have a better understanding when those words pop up in, you know, service or, you know, church on Sunday or Wednesday night or Bible study you'll know those things a little bit better and you'll be able to see what, how that changes the Bible and gives you that richness. Um, so don't, I mean, my biggest encouragement is just read the Bible for the fun of it. Read the Bible for mm-hmm. getting to know the God who created you and to yeah. the son that he sent for you a little bit better. Yeah. So, and I'll add, and I'll add, it will when those, when God wants those times in your life to drive it into your heart, mm-hmm. right? No the problem. more you have, gather that information and the more you do it, the richer it will become. It will. But it doesn't yeah. mean that every time I sit down for my morning Bible study and devotion or whatever, that I'm going to have that moment. But the more that understanding comes when God's ready and the Spirit works, it's going to be, you know, that much more. Yeah. Um, my, my mind and heart's going to be that much more available to Him when I have that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, great. Well, no, appreciate you being here and, uh, and joining yeah, us and sharing really your insights. It was, it was great. Like to do it again. This should have really been a, a three-hour episode, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. Aiden, it's good to have you yeah. here as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great. That's good. Uh, Pastor, would you like to pray us out? Yeah, let's do that. Lord God, we are so grateful 
for your providence and your sovereignty, um, your generosity in wanting to make yourself known to us in the ways that you do it in different times and places and cultures, and that you've preserved all of this for us. And I pray that you would keep us humble in, in how we learn and also keep us hungry in our desire to learn uh, about you and your purposes. And in all things, Lord, help us, uh, as we've talked about on this podcast before, that give us the earphones of Jesus, give us the lenses, the eyeglasses of Jesus, give us the, um, the skin who wants to just take him in, and all these things that we would look about how all this is pointing to your great redemptive plan that you, would, that you accomplish through um, entering into this world yourself uh, to live and die and be raised again for us. And may we enjoy the fact that we are raised up with Jesus, uh, even now, uh, to your right hand, that we get to um, be participants in the, the taking of your kingdom into the earth. And so, Lord, help us know what are our pathways, what are our roads, what are our mountains and valleys and, and places that you've taken, that you're taking us uh, to bear your light and be witnesses to Jesus. And so... Um, Thank you for, for that honor and, and privilege, and, and may we be uh, ongoing students and disciples of Jesus as we, we journey down that road with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Great. Thank you. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs> Hope you have been encouraged in the benefits of using maps in your Bible studies. Until next time, thank you for joining us at the Planet Podcast. Planet is a Cornerstone EPC production, connecting to God, one another, and the world through the love of Jesus. More information can be found at cornerstonebrighton.com.